Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiban. It's great to be with you here this wonderful afternoon. And today, let's talk about the Torah portion of this week, as well as Yud Beis Tammuz, which is the date of the Shabbos, which is a momentous occasion commemorating the liberation of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yossi Yitzchak in 1927 from communist Russia. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, I just came back from a Hatzalah conference. It was incredible. It was an unbelievable experience being there with Hatzalah volunteers, responders, dispatchers, personnel from all over the world. We're talking about 28 Hatzalah organizations from 19 countries and hosted by our Hatzalah of South Africa. It was an incredible event. Now we all know that the symbol for the medical fraternity is the caduceus. I'm sure everyone is familiar with that. The caduceus is that snake kind of, or it looks like a snake, um, entwined rod, which is the emblem of the medical profession. I guess perhaps it's every doctor's hoping and praying that somehow their medical advice would work as efficiently as Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, and our Parsha. What's the story in our Parsha? Well, the story, very strange biblical episode, is when poisonous snakes attack the Jews in the desert, in the wilderness, during their 40-year journey to the land of Israel, God instructs Moshe to fashion a special healing instrument. Guess what it was? None other than a pole topped with the form of a snake. Moshe sculpted a snake of copper and placed it on top of this pole. And anyone who was afflicted by the snake bites would just gaze on this serpentine image of the pole. And guess what? They were cured. So with little wonder why this, the caduceus, was chosen as the emblem of the medical profession. But we wonder, as we study every Torah portion, we try to learn lessons for life. There's a glaring, obvious question. What was the point of placing a snake on the top of a pole to cure the Jews who were bitten? If it was God who was healing them miraculously, which ultimately all healing comes from God, we, anyone who's involved in the medical field, whether as a basic life support or a doctor, or a nurse, or anyone. We know, hopefully, certainly as Jews, certainly in Hatzalah, that it's God Almighty, Ani Hashem God is the ultimate healer. We are God's agents. We're doing what God wants us to. It's the job of a medical professional, of anyone involved in the medical world, to help in the healing, just as a farmer is one who is tending to the field, although ultimately it's God who will decide if the crops will grow. And just like anything else, ultimately it's Hashem. God will decide if a person's healed, but God asks us to partner with him. It's that synthesis, it's that synchronization of our work, our partnership with Hashem, heaven and earth, physical and spiritual. That's why we also pray. That's why we also increase in acts of goodness and kindness and Torah study and other things in the spiritual realm. 
So the question then is what's the point of looking up at that snake? And this is not a question I ask. This is actually a question that's raised in the Talmud. The Gemara asks, is a snake capable of determining life and death? And the answer is, as the Talmud tells us, that rather when the Jews would gaze upward, when they would look towards heaven, the snake was on top of the pole, so that, so to say, gazed them upward. They would bind their hearts, their souls, their minds to heaven, to God. And then they'd be healed. And the Talmud says, in fact, if they wouldn't, then they would die, they would perish. So fixing their eyes on the snake alone had no results. There was no cure that came from that. It was only looking upward towards God. It was that relationship with Hashem that brought their healing. But if so, why bother to carve out a snake of copper in the first place. That could only make people feel as if it's the copper snake that's performing the miracle of the healing. Why would God give Moses an instruction like this that perhaps can be distorted in some way? And in fact, that's exactly what happened. The copper snake that Moshe made was preserved for centuries as a testament to this miraculous, extraordinary event that's described in our Torah portion. And with the passage of time, unfortunately, the meaning, the purpose, the the idea behind it became distorted. People began to say that it's the snake itself that possessed these healing powers of its own. And when it reached a certain point of becoming an image of idolatry, that time the great Jewish king, Chizkiyahu HaMelech, he destroyed the copper snake that was fashioned by Moshe Rabbeinu. And that was the end of the copper snake. That was it. He said, better not to have, not to preserve this for, as a testimony for eternity, if people are going to misconstrue its purpose, what it's about. And that, of course, enforces our question. Why ask people to look up at this man-made snake, which could only create room for theological error by people deifying a snake thinking it's a snake that brings the cure and healing rather than the creator. And of course, the snake, we know, was the animal that caused the harm in the first place. The snake was the one that was biting them. It's quite strange that the healing would come from these snakes looking up at a snake. It's something you would think stay far away from a snake. Why here is the remedy from gazing at the very venomous creature that caused the damage to begin with. And this is something that the Talmud discussed. And there are great thinkers, theologians, and sages throughout Jewish history that address this question. And I would like to discuss it too. But first, I told you we're going to talk about something else as well, that this Shabbos commemorates the momentous occasion celebrating the liberation of the previous Rebbe who was arrested in 1927. It was a very difficult, harsh time. And I could talk, remembering very vividly, my grandmother, who was a teenager at the time, and she remembers firsthand what was going on. And my father, growing up in communist Russia, attested what it was like in the 1930s and 40s when he was a child, what life then was like. Joseph Stalin, who by 1927, 
was already a few years into his reign, his leadership of the Soviet Union. That's after the death of, of, of his predecessor, Lenin. And he embarked on this ruthless campaign to root out all religion from their entire region. To cut down mercilessly even the slightest opposition of the communist regime. And if one practiced religion, which was coined the opium of the masses by none other than a Jew too, by Karl Marx, this was something adapted by the communists. And they considered Judaism, or ostensibly all religions, as some kind of revolution, as some kind of crime that was to be punished brutally. And so during the era, during the 30-something years of Stalin's reign of horror, he actually murdered so many people for so many reasons, including practice of religion. Some put it at 20 million, and other historians say even 40 to 50 million of Russian, Ukrainian, Eastern European citizens were murdered by the communist regime. And Jews and Judaism would be one of the primary targets of Stalin. Stalin set up this whole special government organization. In fact, he put secularized communist Jews, they called themselves the Yevisekcia, which was the Jewish part of the communist party to ensure that Russian Jewry in its millions embraced the ethos of communism, of Stalinism, and ostensibly they were going to have a, a paradise. In fact, they created a whole Jewish region as a alternative to Israel. I forget what that area was called. Birabijan, uh, maybe? I don't know. I remember offhand. But this was the paradise. It was actually constructed of bullets and gulags. And there, and then, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson, was actually born on yud based Thomas in 1880. He spearheaded an underground Jewish resistance to Stalin's ideological final solution. And with the assistance of his loyal army of Hasidim, of which many members of my own family were part of this, the Rebbe created this extraordinary underground network of bustling Jewish activity. And this included the creation of Jewish schools, of yeshivas, of shuls, of mikvahs, of ensuring Torah education for so many, of printing and publishing Jewish books and magazines and newsletters, and providing rabbis and rebbitzes and spiritual leaders for communities, and teachers for schools. And over the 1920s and 30s, in fact, there were more than 600 Jewish underground schools that were introduced, that were built by Chabad throughout the entire former Soviet Union. And interesting, you think 600, that's a staggering number. Well, let me tell you, it's not that they were so successful and built so many buildings all over the place. Because of the conditions of living in communism's forbidding practice of religion, most of these schools were underground, were hidden in various places not to be detected. And so many of these places, many of these schools lasted just a few days, weeks, or months. They didn't last very long, hence the numbers that are actually recorded. And when the KGB, the, the uh, secret Russian police, discovered a school, 
The children were expelled. The teacher was arrested. Sometimes they were sent off to Siberia. Sometimes they were summarily executed. That was communist Russia. And guess what? As soon as one was closed down, a new one was opened somewhere else. In another basement, in a cellar, in a roof, somewhere hidden. My father was a child during the 30s and 40s. He described to me, he says, today you go to school. He was telling me this as a child, a millennial. We pay for you, tuition for you to go to school. When he was a kid, school was on the run. There were constantly refugees, one place and another. And finally, in 1927, the Rebbe was caught. Well, he wasn't on the run. He wasn't hiding. But he was arrested. And he paid the ultimate price for his work. He was brutally taken from his home in the middle of the night. One June in 1927, my grandmother was a teenager at the time, was out there. They were demonstrating and protesting and very worried and concerned about the well-being of the Rebbe. And the Rebbe was incarcerated. I'm talking about the previous Rebbe. In one of the most horrendous prisons in the Soviet tell. And he was given a capital sentence. He was sentenced to death. And this this death sentence was protested by governments around the world, particularly, I think it was President Hoover of the USA at the time, who interceded and managed to get them to commute it to a 10-year exile sentence. Millions of people died in those exiles. They lived in unbearable conditions where they were sent to gulags and Siberia in terrible conditions. And then with more pressure, it was converted to a three-year exile sentence. And finally, it was changed to a 10-day exile sentence in the city of Kastrama. I don't know exactly what Kastrama is, but I know that 20-something years ago, as a rabbinical student, we went to Russia to conduct seders. And I was sent off to some place with my friend called Sizran. We had a very incredible experience to talk about another time. But I remember getting back to Moscow and talking to my cousin, where did you go? He said he was sent to Kastrama. Interestingly, his name is Yosef Yitzchak. So he was named after the previous Rebbe. And that was his experience going there. And then on Yud Beis Tammuz, the 12th day of Tammuz in 1927, which this Shabbos marks exactly 90, what is it, 96 years? Time flies. And the Rebbe was set free. This is literally a miracle. Far less significant activists in the Soviet Union were murdered for far smaller crimes. The fact that the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe stood up to this mighty, brutal, ruthless, mighty power, and he survived. That sowed the seeds for Jewish life, not only in the Soviet Union over the next seven decades, where Chabad remained throughout the entire period, all the way through Glasnost and to this very day. But for Judaism, or at least for Chabad, Hasidic Judaism, to survive. I assure you, if this story didn't happen, then, of course, everything is orchestrated by divine providence, then I don't think there would be a Chabad in South Africa. But obviously, God had other plans. And Chabad was saved, and no doubt, along the way, Judaism too. This is literally a miracle. This was... Something, even today, think about it. The world is still intimidated by Russia. Look what's going on there in Ukraine. Look what's happening. Look what happened this past week. Russia 
the Russian government, people dear to stand up to them. Putin runs a very tight ship, to put it mildly. And in those days, under Stalin, you couldn't even dream of resistance. And yet, wonder of wonders. Here was the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe with a small army of Hasidim that were able to stand up to the most evil and cruel superpower at his time. And the miracle of the Rebbe's liberation certainly guaranteed the future of Judaism in Russia. And obviously, the very continued existence of the Chabad Lubavitch movement. If not for this day of Yud Beis Thomas, I don't know where our community here in South Africa would even be today. We'll be back in a few moments. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 High FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiedman, and it's great to be here with you this wonderful afternoon. We're talking about the Torah portion this week, the portion of Chukas, which we're going to reconnect in a moment. But first, we were just discussing the portion, the story, the liberation of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, on this Shabbos in 1927, on the 12th of Tammuz. And as I was discussing before, what it was like, the brutality with which he was treated in the prison cell, and it was brutal. In fact, he paid a hefty price for his work, but that didn't stop him, that didn't prevent him, nor his Hasidim from continuing to do all that they can to preserve Judaism in the Soviet Union. And the previous Rebbe was actually, throughout the interrogations and investigations, in these meetings, which they sentenced them to death, they put a pistol to his head at one point, at different points, and they threw him down a set of steps and his belt clasped into his side. There were numerous instances where they nearly took his life out. And in fact, when the previous Rebbe left the prison, over that period, he actually wrote a detailed diary of his experiences of everything that occurred to him in that time. And it's unbelievable. The in general, when you read the writings, he was a prolific writer, and his writings are just unique in so many ways. And in this profoundly dramatic and historic first-person description of everything that happened to him, the previous Rebbe graphically documents the cold truth behind that cynical Stalinist facade of ostensible religious tolerance, the midnight arrest when they incarcerated him, the intimidation, the interrogation, the incarceration without trial, all the different things they did to him, humiliation of prison routine, the, the torture of dissidents, the firing squads that he witnessed firsthand, cutting down countless innocent men and women. It's a chilling and remarkable account. And in fact, I would encourage anyone who wants a nice read over this weekend over Shabbos, it's a must-read for anyone who wants to understand that dark era of history, not so long ago, just a century ago. And in fact, you can download it from our website. If you go to ChabadSouthAfrica.org, you can read this book. It's called The Prince in Prison. That's the English version of it. The original is in Hebrew and Yiddish, and it's the previous Rebbe's description of he describes the complete physical and psychological subjugation, not just his own experience of other prisoners that he witnessed firsthand what he, what he experienced in this hellhole of a prison called Spalek, Spalerka, I think, that's in Leningrad. And uh, just one example of what he writes, he describes how since the cells had no clocks, sounds more like a casino, 
It's only there's these routine announcements he would write that would give them a notion of what time it was. There were no clocks. So in the summer, the prisoners were awakened at 6.30 in the morning. And bread would be distributed at 7.30. And then the lights would be turned down at 10.30 at night. But they had no clue unless for some reason they were taken outside that what time of day or night it was. And it was a very clear message from the communist regime, from the KGB, that this is a prison and it's a Soviet prison and they do not want you to feel any sense of freedom. You're made to feel that you own nothing. You have no rights, not even the right of knowing what time it is. And so the Rebbe wrote in his diary, he described this little anecdote about the time. And then he connects it and says, the Medrash tells us, from where did Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving the Torah from God, how did he know when it was day, when it was night? He was up on top in heaven, up, up, up in the mountain. And so the Medrash says that when Moshe would hear the angels saying, Kadosh, Kadosh, holy, holy, he knew it was day. And when he heard the angels saying, Baruch, that God should be blessed, then he knew that it was night. And that's how he ends that chapter of the diary. Go read it yourself. Prince in Prison on ChabadSouthAfrica.org. Or maybe it's even available to purchase at Chabad Bookstore and Kosher World. Check it out. Now, very interesting. What a mysterious comparison of the jail incarceration experience that he himself endured in Sparlerka in Leningrad, today's St. Petersburg, and Moshe Rabbeinu on Mount Sinai. Here, the Rebbe is sitting in a Soviet prison, one of the most fearsome prisons in Stalin's hell and probably and possibly in the world. Few people made it out of that place alive. The mere mention of its name was sufficient to send shivers down your spine, the Rebbe wrote in his diary. And here the saintly man was deprived of all of his rights, the most basic gift which every decent human deserves, liberty, to know what time it is. Not only is he not free to do what he wants to do, but, you know, to even move around freely. He's a prisoner, but he's not even given the dignity to know when it's day or night. He's, he was lodged in that dungeon without a window or a clock. You could experience it yourself just as a tourist if you want to go down, go to Russia, maybe find a safer time to go there. And I know people who've visited that prison just to see what the previous Rebbe endured there. And what did that experience remind him of? Of Moshe Rabbeinu sitting on the peak of Mount Sinai, learning Torah from the mouth of the author himself, Almighty God, and not knowing day from night because he finds himself in this transcendent state. If there was ever a free man, no doubt, as the Mishnah says, there's no free person but one who's occupied in Torah study. That's Moshe on the top of Mount Sinai, liberated from any human constraints, even from the most basic necessities of food and drink. Can you tell me if there's was ever two more diametrically opposed reality situations than this? A Rebbe incarcerated in a Stalinist prison, requiring the brutal guard to wake him up in order to know when dawn is broken. 
and Moshe Rabbeinu on Mount Sinai, sitting, basking in the spirituality, receiving the Torah, studying with God Almighty, his very blueprint for life, that he requires angels on high to sing Kadosh, holy, in order for him to know it's day, or Baruch, blessed be Hashem, and Moshe knows it's night. What is this comparison? One of, you know, one, the previous Rebbe, the epitome of, of enslavement, incarceration, in shackles, and the other, Moshe Rabbeinu, the epitome of liberation, of freedom. And yet, the Rebbe, our Rebbe, finds a connection between the two. In one of the Rebbe's famous talks, in July of 1969, addressing a gathering in honor of this festival of liberation, the Chaga Geula of Yudbeis Tammuz, the Rebbe raised this incomprehensible passage of the previous Rebbe's diary. And his answer captures, at least in my mind, the essence of what it means to be a Jew. And its relevance is not only to a Jew incarcerated in communist Russia, but to you and me here nearly a century later today. And let's go back to the Parsha and how the Rebbe gleaned a lesson, a message from the Parsha to this episode of the previous Rebbe's incarceration in Soviet Russia. And he says, in our Parsha, we read about the snake. Remember, we talked about that just a couple of moments ago. The snake, as all biblical stories, there's obviously a message and a lesson that captures the timeless journeys of the human psyche. Torah's messages and lessons are for us to glean from. And so there's a metaphor of snakes in our own lives as well. Think last week at our Hatzalah conference we had a very fascinating presentation of venomous snakes from one of the most professional people who deals with them. And Bernard Siegel of Hatzala talked to 130 delegates from around the world about the treatments and how to handle snake bites. But snake bites are not only from serpents, from cobras. Snake bites, perhaps are also a metaphor of life. Have you ever been bitten by a venomous snake, poisoned by harmful forces, burned by life or by abusive situations? Did you ever have a manipulative person in your life who just crushed your morale? Maybe a deceptive partner a horrible relationship. Think about situations. People get burnt out, tired, jaded, weary, demoralized by life's journey. And they don't seem to find damage control from the hostility of this world. What's the deeper meaning of suffering? Of these venomous snake bites. How do some people know how to accept the affliction and 
move forward and learn from it and others get stuck in the quagmire deeper and deeper in this negative situation. And these are the types of questions that there's no easy answers for. But one perspective is something that we can learn from the Parsha this week, the portion of Chukas, which was read last week in Israel, but this week Chukas Balak here in Diaspora. And on that note, that's another aspect of what Hatzalah does. And I have to say in my capacity as Rabbi of Chabad Seniors programs as well, we have the CRU, the Crisis Response Unit in Hatzalah, which was replicating the trauma, the psychotrauma unit that they have in Israel, where people, maybe relatives or friends or bystanders who witness a traumatic situation, an emergency, and they need psychological assistance. And that's one of the units we have within Hatzalah. And Chabad seniors, we have volunteers who call and reach out to elderly people to be a listening ear. And you could join our team of volunteers if you'd like. You could even visit seniors. We have visitations every week. You can visit retirement facilities or private homes or people in hospital and uplift their spirits. And by the way, a little secret, when you uplift someone else, you yourself are empowered and you uplift yourself as well. You come out of whatever difficulty you might be dealing with. Many people in life are dealing with very difficult, challenging situations. And so when we think about the story of the previous Rebbe, which we celebrate this weekend, Yud Beis Tammuz, his redemption, his emancipation, his liberation from Soviet prison, and the message in our Parsha, why did the people have to look up to the snake on high? And what the Rebbe was telling us is perhaps... The message, the metaphor of the snakes is not only the literal story. Yes, that's true. But the Torah is milash and hara. It's an instruction for us. When we deal with snakes, when we deal with the venom, with the challenges of the darkness, the hardships of life. And what did Moshe tell the Jews then? God told Moshe, rather, that he should make a serpent and place it on a pole. And whoever gets bitten should look at it and they will live. The key to healing the Torah is suggesting is not by fleeing the cause of the suffering, but by gazing at it. Don't run from the snake. Look at it. Why is this challenge, this snake, this difficulty in my life? But there's one qualification. What was the instruction God said? They have to look up to the snake. You have to peer into the reality of the snake above, on top of the elevated pole, not on the serpent crawling here below that caused them the harm, but focus above. The great Austrian-British philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, he was considered by many to be one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, and he once said that his aim as a philosopher was to show the fly the way out of the fly bottle. The fly keeps banging its head against the glass and its vain attempts to get out. And the more it tries, the more it fails until it drops from exhaustion. The one thing that the fly forgets is to look to the sky, to look up ahead. Coming from Kruger, from our com- com- Hatzalah convention, one of the rangers told us a little interesting story that years ago, maybe during the apartheid era, or maybe it was another time, that there were fences 
in Kruger National Park between the neighboring countries. And elephants knew that if they went all the way to the fence, they'd get hurt. So they stopped going that way. And when they took the fence down, the elephants still didn't go that way. What the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein is telling us is the fly doesn't look up. Every experience in life, there's two dimensions. There's the concrete earthly perspective, and then we sometimes feel stuck in our situation, or we could see things from a higher, more sublime vantage point and appreciate the sublime reality, the true nature, the meaning from God's perspective. Why is this happening to me, we wonder. Well, there's a snake down here, but there's also the snake up there. There's the challenge that we're experiencing in our life, the struggles, the difficulties, and the way that they are manifested down here, and they seem difficult and impossible. But I could also look at these very same struggles from a more elevated point of view. The circumstances may not change, but their meaning, the significance, certainly will. From the downer perspective, these challenges, these curveballs, these painful confrontations and realizations can really, really throw me into the spear. They could drain me of my sap. They're so difficult to bear. But from the higher perspective, the way God sees these very same realities, every challenge contains the seeds for rebirth. Remember the very word impossible, what seems impossible in it is the very word, I'm possible. Remember, you are a South African, not a South African. Within every crisis, we have to realize that glorious possibility of new, deeper reality and discovery that there is a way out. There's a higher perspective. And so, I personally have found, and surely many of you that certain challenges, certain events that at the time were most painful were also those that in retrospect, they caused us to grow. They were a springboard, an impetus for growth. They helped that, that difficult situation that they forced us to ask, who am I and what really matters to me? They moved us from the surface to the depths. And that's when we discovered the strengths that we didn't know we had. The clarity of purpose that perhaps we previously lacked. But we know that the only way that will work is if we look upward. When we're faced with a snake, with a challenge, many people look to their right, to the left. Either they fight or flight. They cave in. They run away. But there's another path that Torah is saying. Look upwards. See the snake from the perspective above. And in that upward gaze, you might find a new sense of healing. The questions might become the very answers. The problems may become the solutions. And the venom may become the cure. And interestingly, something that they told us at the convention when we had our presentation about snake bites, is that we know that most snake bites are cured with antivenom. Where did that antivenom come from? 
Well, we all know we all had vaccines last in the last few years. Well, it's manufactured from small quantities of snake venom that stimulate the production of antibodies in our blood the same way that any vaccination works. And this is what Moshe was saying, the same thing. The source of the affliction itself becomes the remedy. You have to look up. And so, as it's viewed from the heavenly perspective, from the perspective above, our challenges below are the potential for a new self-discovery. Failure is the potential for real success because failure is not getting knocked down. Failure is only if we stay down. But if we learn the lessons, whatever whatever we may have hit, whatever challenge and struggle, if we can learn to grow from it and deepen our relationships, then we could end the era of the difficulties and start a whole new one. The pain is a springboard for deeper love and, frust- and, and the frustration is, as they say, the mother of a new awareness. And this, my friends, is how Judaism dealt with the greatest dilemma of all, the reality of pain in our world. Some religions and philosophies practice denial. They ignore the reality of earth. Suffering isn't real. Pain is an illusion. The whole world is fake. Others on the opposite extreme, they only see the reality on the ground. They deny any purpose, any meaning to life. If atheism is real, suffering makes sense, no doubt. But Judaism invites us on the road less traveled. The genius of the Jewish people and what allowed us to survive and thrive was our insistence that don't go to those extremes. There's another way of seeing things. One group denied darkness, the other group denied light. The Jewish people embodied a different path. Don't deny the light, don't deny the darkness. But how can both be real? Stemming from the same source from one God? Ah. For this Judaism says, take the darkness and transform it into light. From the very snake venom comes the anti-venom, comes the cure. On the deepest level, the snake below is waiting to be redefined as the snake above from God's perspective. We'll be right back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul Radio right on 101.9. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiban, and it's great to be with you here this afternoon. Back to our discussion, we've been talking about the Torah portion of Hukas and Balak and the peculiar enigmatic story of the Jewish people during their journey in the desert when they were attacked by these venomous snakes. And what does God instruct Moses to do? For their cure and healing, Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu to sculpt a snake of copper and to place it on top of the pole. And the people were to look up to the snake and miraculously they would be cured and healed from the venomous snake bites. And we ask the question, one wonders, why would God give Moshe such an instruction? Does it not appear deceptively as idolatrous, as if looking up to the snake would bring them healing Isn't it the creator, almighty God himself, who is the only true healer? And as we discussed, the purpose was not that the people would look at a copper snake 
but rather to look up to heaven. In fact, as discussed, King Chizkiyahu ultimately destroyed that copper snake that was preserved to remember this miraculous event because, unfortunately, people did look at it in the wrong way and thought that it's this symbol, the Carduceus. Now, no doubt, as part of the medical fraternity, that this symbol perhaps is a reminder of that story and reminding us, indeed, that the ultimate healing comes from Almighty God. And that's why King Chizkiyahu eliminated it. But the idea, the teaching of Hasidah, as highlighted by the story of the previous Rebbe, whose liberation from Soviet incarceration that we celebrate this weekend, this Shabbos, on the 12th of Tammuz, 96 years later, nearly a century since this event occurred, where he was incarcerated in a most brutal way by the Soviet regime back in Russia. And yet, the message and lesson from our Parsha that the previous Rebbe learned that was that within the pain and suffering is the springboard, the opportunity for blessing. And this is a theme, a story that we see throughout the Torah. We have the story not only in our Parsha, which is a very clear illustration of this, but even earlier on coming, thinking of the story when Yaakov, it's a perfect story to connect with, where Yaakov Avinu, far from his home, is wrestling with an unknown, an unnamed adversary from night until the break of day. Know the story. Why are we singing a song about Yaakov's struggle with this mysterious man? In fact, the man maims Yaakov. He causes him to limp. To this very day, we remember the story by not eating certain cuts of meat. And yet, at the end of a struggling night, a night to remember, Yaakov turned to this angel, to the stranger, and he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. Think about this. We sing the story. This is a significant story in the Torah. Yaakov wants this person who just hurt him, who maimed him, to bless him? Is this how you would bid farewell to somebody who's attempting to hurt you, to destroy you? And yet, Yaakov was teaching us the very same lesson, the secret of Jewish resilience. To be a Jew is to possess that unique ability to say to every single challenge, crisis, difficulty that we ever face, I will not let you go until you bless me. I know that deep down the entire objective of this incident, of this struggle in my life is to elevate me, to bring me to a higher place so I could climb the mountain leading to the truth, to allow me to emerge stronger, wiser, and blessed. That's the purpose. And that's exactly the message and lesson that the previous Rebbe back in 1927 gleaned. When the Rebbe was sitting there in Spalerka, Leningrad, the most horrendous prison where he was incarcerated, where he was interrogated, where he was brutally beaten and so many times over and over again. He didn't look to the right and left in his room because there, had he done so, what would he have seen? Thick walls, mighty gates, despair, a sense of defeat possibly could have conquered him had he been looking in those directions, what's around him. He was surrounded by the Soviet prison cell that had no windows, that didn't even have a clock to tell the time, no doubt he would have felt stripped from his 
humanness, from his dignity, from his very sense of selfhood, of existence. But the Rebbe didn't look to his right and left. He would have seen nothing but the venomous serpents that were determined to bite him, to poison him, to hurt him. What did the Rebbe do? He looked up as he described in his own diary. And what did he see? The Rebbe describes how he saw this imagery, what the Medrash tells us, that Moshe Rabbeinu was on top of Mount Sinai. He was cradled by the divine. He was learning Torah with God. He was basking in spirituality. He didn't know the difference between day and night without the angels giving him that information, saying Kadosh to indicate his day and Baruch to indicate his night. And that's what the Rebbe saw that story. He wasn't naive. He knew exactly where he was, what type of people he was dealing with. But his guiding principle in life was exactly this. The true underlying reality of every single moment of life, of every experience, of every existence we realize, ultimately, that is God. And yes, indeed, sometimes God is testing us. And you know, the very word used for a test, Nisayon, also means to elevate. A test is an elevation. Again, failure is not getting down. Failure is only if you stay down. Any test we face is an opportunity. Every challenge is essentially an invitation, an opportunity for an elevation, for growth. In the story in our Parsha of the serpents, think about it. What does the Torah say? That Sim Osa Anais, God instructs Moshe to place the snake on a pole, again, on an elevated object, to help us look upward. In the words of the Torah, Ein Od Milvado, ultimately we realize nothing exists besides for Hashem. One of the secrets in the first word of the Torah is that the word Bereshis, in the beginning, can also be read as a compound of the word Bara Shis, that God created this veil. We're being taught that God created the universe with a veil. The very word Ha'olam, the world, is the, can be pronounced as the word Helam, which means concealment. The veil manifests itself as the forces of nature that make it difficult for us to perceive God's existence. And it's our task in life to seek out God in the world, to pull away from the veil and glimpse the reality that underlies everything and to realize the ultimate purpose for everything, for every incident. And it means every single moment and every experience there is that higher meaning. There's a purpose, an opportunity for transcendence to overcome our struggles, our challenges, our difficulties. And this is exactly the message that the previous Rebbe was telling us in the story of his Soviet incarceration, despite all that he endured. And indeed, it really did take a toll on his life, on his health. But he reminded us of a very powerful message and lesson in our Parsha. Although he was sitting in a dungeon, that he was able to look up at Moshe Rabbeinu's pole with the serpent on top. It's not the serpent that brings us the healing, but within the serpent, within the challenge and struggle, the very same snake that was biting the people, that same snake becomes that source of healing and strength. There he was sitting in jail, yet seeing 
Moshe Rabbeinu sitting on Mount Sinai. And just like Moshe, who couldn't distinguish between day and night, he couldn't either, as no clocks were there within the Sparlaika prison jail cell. And yet, people who were imprisoned, but they were emotionally set free. Even Viktor Frankl described how in the worst hellhole experience of Hitler's concentration camps, he described how even there, there were people who had everything confiscated from them. And despite that, despite everything that was taken from them, he says there was one thing, the last of human freedoms, and that is that attitude that despite any circumstance they were in, to choose the way they were going to behave. It's our choice. It's up to us. God gives us the free choice to choose. And we need to choose to see the opportunities within the struggles and challenges. And to that, my friends, I tell you, carpe diem. Seize that moment every single day. Because every day we have so many opportunities to see the blessings within that day, the blessings within the challenges and curses. Wishing you a festive and joyous and a warm and celebratory Shabbos. Remember to aspire to inspire before you retire. Have a great Shabbos and indeed a good Yom Tov. God bless.